Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. The past week was a busy one in the national park system. From Big Bend National Park in Texas, word came that the Chisos Mountain Lodge had some serious structural problems that will need some extensive repairs and could even lead to a brand new facility in that park. Meanwhile, the National Park Service released visitation numbers for 2018, and they showed that visitation to the national park system was down 13 million visitors when compared to 2017 numbers. Nevertheless, there still are some serious crowding issues across the park system that need to be dealt with in some form or fashion. We also got the Office of Inspector General's report on an investigation into Grand Canyon Superintendent Christine Lennertz, who had been accused of fostering a hostile atmosphere at the park and uh, recklessly spending money on renovations to park housing. You can find those and other stories about the parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's podcast, Traveler contributor Erica Zambello kicks off the show. She recently sat down with Alex Fogg, the Marine Resource Coordinator for Okaloosa County, Florida, to talk about invasive lionfish and how they impact marine national parks in Florida and beyond. We also have a short interview with Traveler contributing photographer Becky Latson, who uh, recently spent some time in uh, Olympic National Park and came away with some gorgeous photographs and interesting stories to share with you. Finally this week, we take a look down the road, down to harvest time in the national parks, and point out some great destinations where you can find yourself a tasty apple or a sweet peach. My name is Erica Zambello, and today I'm talking to Alex Fogg, the Marine Resource Coordinator for Okaloosa County, about the lionfish invasion and how it affects our national park system and coastal waters. So like me, you are a Florida transplant. You're not originally from here. Where did you grow up and how did you get into fisheries in general? Well, I was a Navy brat, so I grew up in a lot of coastal towns, so I've always been around the water, but I spent most of my time growing up in Annapolis, traveling down to Florida to fish and dive with family. Being around the marine environment, I wanted to pick a career that would keep me near the water, and marine sciences seemed to be the uh, answer to that. Do you remember the first time that you ever scuba dived? Uh, I do. I do. I remember scuba diving in a pool when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, and I thought it was amazing. Um, It was only maybe four or five more years before I started looking into getting certified and then eventually got certified when I was 16. So you studied marine sciences in undergrad? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I went to University of South Carolina, uh, studied marine sciences, specifically physical oceanography. So a lot of stuff with satellites and looking at, um, at weather and whatnot. But I did an internship my junior year uh, that incorporated a lot of ecology and biology, and I kind of shifted uh, shifted gears my senior year in college and went that direction. And then you did one more degree before you moved to Florida. Uh, what was that, and where was that? Well, right after I graduated from University of South Carolina with my undergraduate degree, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened. So that brought me to the Gulf Coast. I did a lot of work trying to measure those impacts. And then when that money dried up, I went to grad school at University of Southern Mississippi, where I earned my uh, master's degree uh, in coastal sciences. So 
Where did you get this fascination with lionfish? Because around here, you're known as the lionfish guy. So how did you get interested in lionfish in general? So like I said, I was in Mississippi doing a lot of Deepwater Horizon oil spill work. Uh, That money eventually dried up. And being an avid diver at the time, there was a, a rumbling of these invasive species that were entering the Gulf of Mexico in 2010, 2011. Being lionfish, I knew what they were from starting my dive career in the Atlantic, which they had been there for 15 years prior. Um, so I started reaching out to the, the dive community and around the Gulf of Mexico asking if they had been seeing lionfish. There was a few people who had, but it really wasn't something that was seen on every dive like it is today. Being that I was doing a lot of life history work or uh, studying the, the biology of a lot of fishes for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, it, it made sense to, to create a similar project for this invasive species. Started asking a number of divers and fishermen to start collecting fish and help uh, provide me with samples. And then one thing led to another and I got inundated with samples when that, when that invasion really took off in the Gulf. So I first met you when you were working on artificial reefs for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Were you able to continue working on lionfish while you were also focused on artificial reefs more broadly? So what probably got me that job at Florida Fish and Wildlife was lionfish. Uh, there was a, a lionfish program within For- Florida Fish and Wildlife, specifically in the Division of uh, Marine Fisheries Management. And I was able to kind of split time between artificial reef work as well as the, the lionfish work. That focus slowly shifted as my time went on there at Florida Fish and Wildlife to mostly artificial reefs. But I was still able to, to remain relevant, I guess, in the lionfish world, both, both research and, and recreationally. Lionfish are a relatively recent problem in Florida, and by that I mean in the late 1980s and really kicking off in the 21st century. Can you talk a little bit about how that invasion began, especially for a state that is not a stranger to invasive species? Yeah, like like many invasive species, this invasive species, it really is amazing being introduced or first detected off southeast florida in 1985 the the invasion like you said really didn't take off until after 2000 but after 2000 it spread up the entire eastern seaboard over to bermuda down through the bahamas caribbean south america and eventually reached the gulf of mexico in 2010 2011 so it took a while to kind of make it over here to the west coast of florida but the numbers over here in the in the gulf of mexico were much higher than anywhere else in their invaded range that's mostly due to the currents that kind of uh, dead end here up in the uh, up in the Florida Panhandle on the west coast of Florida. There's been a lot of studies that have looked at lionfish life history, their impacts to native species, and uh, there's currently a lot of work being done to look at ways that we can capture lionfish from depths that divers just can't get to because divers are really only hitting the top 200 feet of water, um, but lionfish can survive to well over 1,000 feet of water. So we needed to be able to figure out a way that we could harvest lionfish or remove lionfish from habitat that's that's much deeper than we can go and traps seem to be that answer and there's still a, a lot of work to be done to come up with a trap that's the, the save all but it's um it's certainly on its way so for someone who has never seen a lionfish how would you describe this invasive species and also what's it like to dive for these lionfish well lionfish are really really pretty um so that's that's how they got here being a very pretty fish, that's what you want in your aquarium. That's what you want to show off at your dentist, uh, dentist office or doctor's <laughs> office. But when they get too big or they start eating all your other $100 fish in your aquarium, most people would want to either kill it or just let it go. And in this case, that's what we think happened is some folks let their fish go. And they, they spread, you know, like I said, throughout the, the, the Western Atlantic. 
but in their native or in their uh, invaded range, uh, they're still just as pretty as they would be in a, an aquarium. There's just a whole lot of them. You dive for lionfish all the time. How come you can't catch them if you're a topwater fisherman? Well, lionfish are super lazy, really, really lazy. So if you're out there fishing hook and line, there's a lot of native species that are extremely aggressive, like your red snapper, your grouper, and triggerfish. And oftentimes when you drop your bait to the bottom, you're going to catch one of those well before a lionfish even realizes there's a nice tasty snack there on a hook. Um, in some cases, people do catch lionfish on hook and line, but that's usually a case where the, the hook literally hit it in the head. <laughs> <laughs> There are so many lionfish down there right now, but why do we care? How is it impacting, you know, what's supposed to be down there? Well, there's, there, it's kind of twofold. There's a, there's a lot of recreationally and commercially important species that are extremely, extremely important to our region, especially here in Destin, Florida. Lionfish actually can prey directly on those species when they're juveniles, but they, I think more importantly, or more detrimentally, feed on the same things that your red snapper and grouper actually feed on. So the small demersal species, really anything that they can fit in their mouth is what they're going to eat. So if you gobble up all the food supply for your native species, uh, that's certainly going to have a a longer lasting impact. So you're currently a coastal manager. You're the marine resource coordinator for Okaloosa County, and you work with a lot of, you know, marine managers in the national park systems and beyond. What are some of the things you all are doing to reduce the lionfish population? You know, you mentioned traps, but are there other methods to try to combat the population levels of lionfish? Yeah, outreach and education is extremely important. Educating the public about this invasive species, that it is very good to eat. That, that's probably one of the, I guess, best initiatives that we have going on right now. Because if we have people demanding these things in the, in the restaurant... The price per pound to the actual fisherman or the commercial fisherman will increase, which will make them want to go out and harvest even more lionfish. Um, and that's one thing that you know we've proved over the years is that humans are, are very good at, at beating down a population of really any fish. And this is one fish that we would love to, to reduce to a, a very low level. Yes, that's definitely true. We're great at wiping out different fish species. And that's, that's one of the biggest push for these traps. You know, there's a lot of commercial fishermen out there who are bound by a number of different fishing seasons and having a fish that they could fish for year round or during times when uh, their other, I guess, target species are closed would certainly supplement their income and traps are, are generally a very efficient way of doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, on National Parks Traveler, we recently published an article about lionfish lesions, and some of those lionfish have been popping up in Biscayne National Park. But lionfish with lesions have actually shown up all across the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. So what are these lionfish lesions, and what do people think are causing them? Well, that's the the million-dollar question. We don't exactly know what that is uh, or what these lesions are. In August 2017, we were doing a dive on a local reef site here off of Destin, Florida, and came across a number of lionfish presenting with these lesions. We didn't think too much of it, but the following weekend, we were doing some dives uh, down in St. Pete, Florida, and noticed a very uh, similar lesion on some of the lionfish down there. Started reaching out to a number of folks throughout the invaded range and determined that this is something that was popping up all over the place, the Caribbean, the East Coast, Mexico and started collecting a whole bunch of samples and noticed that this was affecting upwards of 40% of the population. Uh, We've run a number of tests, and we haven't come up with any conclusive results yet, uh, but we're working with a number of different partners to try and figure out the cause. As much as we know now, it's not something that 
affects humans, um, and it doesn't affect native species either. So this seems to be more of a, a lionfish-specific disease or, or virus. You think of the War of the Worlds, the, the downfall of that alien or that invader was something very basic as an amoeba. And in this case, lionfish being the invader, maybe it's some very basic virus or, or disease that's present in the, the native system that they just don't know what it is and don't know how to deal with it. Yeah, fingers crossed. So a lot of the problems that we have in the United States with invasive species is because we don't address the problem quickly enough. Now, I know you work with national park staff, you work with agency staff, you work with federal, local, statewide staff. How do you think the state of Florida is coming together to deal with this lionfish invasion problem? Uh, the state of Florida, specifically Florida Fish and Wildlife, has been really the leader on, on all things lionfish for the last maybe four or five years. Um, they've been extremely generous with providing funding for a number of different initiatives. Uh, and I think that other states and other countries could even learn from this this sort of model. Granted, it, it ends up costing a lot of money, but the, the amount of money that you know, lionfish and really invasive species in general can cause to you know, the economy is well beyond the money that they're investing to try and fix these problems. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you've mentioned something so far that people can do even if they're not divers to combat this lionfish problem. So what are some things that your average citizen or your average visitor to Florida can do to help stem the tide of lionfish population increase? Well, number one is if you're going to a seafood restaurant, you're going to a seafood market, ask for lionfish. Odds are they'll know what it is, and, and there's a very good chance that they actually do serve lionfish when they can get their hands on it. And when they notice that there's a, there's a demand for it and people asking for it, they'll be more likely to pay a premium for a fish that their customers want. Um, also, attending uh, lionfish events such as derbies and seeing, seeing the numbers of lionfish that come in and meeting the divers and the folks that are out there on the front lines harvesting lionfish, uh, it could actually be a, a pretty cool experience. And those are happening really throughout, throughout the invaded range every month, especially during the, the warmer months. Yeah, and don't you have an event coming up this spring? We do. Um, we're hosting the Emerald Coast Open, which is happening at the same time as Lionfish Removal and Awareness Day, which is actually a day that was uh, coined by the Florida legislator uh, is the first Sunday after Mother's Day in May. Um, this event's shaping up to be one of the biggest ever, a very large tournament. But in addition to the tournament, there's a very large festival, and that's happening down uh, Harbor Walk Village in AJ's in Destin, Florida, May 18th and 19th. Awesome. And I can tell you from experience that lionfish is amazing to eat. And you can cook it up just about every way. Alex has actually made me some before, and I've had it in the local area. So if anyone is coming to Florida or any place that lionfish can be found, definitely order it from your restaurant. Well, those were all the questions I had, and I just want to thank you so much for your time. And maybe when you get some updates on the, the lesions, you can come back and talk to us again. Sure will. Thanks, Erica. All right. Thanks so much. Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. 
There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The national parks are here for all of us. A truly American idea dependent on the support of people like you. The National Park Foundation works in the parks you love to protect them for the next generation. Through the Foundation's programs, trails in the national park system are maintained, ocean resources and their marine life are protected, and philanthropic dollars are raised to help support park managers make ends meet. See how you can support the national parks by visiting nationalparks.org. Becky Latson Long has been a contributing photographer for the National Parks Traveler, exploring the national park system and coming away with some outstanding photographs and, and providing the readers with some outstanding photo tips that uh, more than a few of us, I'm sure, um, are benefiting from. Recently, she went up to Olympic National Park in January. That's a pretty unusual time to visit Olympic, as most people no doubt uh, prefer to go in the warmer weather months. But Nevertheless, Becky was nearby, so she stopped into Olympic National Park to uh, see the landscape and what she could photograph, and uh, she's here today with us to um, talk about it. Hi, Becky. How are you? I'm fine, Kurt. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and you know, after, after reading your piece on uh, your visit to Olympic National Park and looking at those gorgeous photos, I'm, I'm envious both of your opportunity to go visit the park as well as the, the talent that you have for capturing the personality of national parks with your cameras. Thank you so much, Kurt. That's very kind of you to say. I went in January because I actually like traveling to national parks in the winter. Generally, it means there are few to no people. And uh, in the case of Olympic National Park, there's some great storm watching along the beaches. Of course, there is the caveat that uh, a number of the roads in that park are closed for seasonal purposes. And I happened to be visiting during the time of the government shutdown. So there were roads closed also because there was just nobody there to clean up any storm damage or trees in the road. Sure, sure. Now, now, storm watching, for, for those who have never been to Olympic or are unfamiliar with the, the term storm watching in, in Olympic National Park, it's largely tied to the sea stacks, right? I mean, people show up to see the, the violent Pacific surf slamming into those incredible pillars of rocks just off the coast. Exactly. But there's also a lot of beauty that you can see, uh, sea stacks or no sea stacks, depending upon which beach you go to. Every beach seems to have its own particular feature. Like uh, at Kalaylock Beach, there's the Kalaylock Creek running through the beach going out into the ocean. And then at beach number four, there's the famous Tree of Life, or it's also called the tree root cave, but you have during the winter, you have all these clouds that are out in the distance. And so you get just some beautiful shots, sea stacks or no sea stacks of the ocean and the beach and the log jams on the beach and the clouds in the distance. Yeah, I believe in the past, um, some photographers have, have told me those, uh, those cloudy skies sometimes add some structure to the, to the image. 
they actually do. They add structure. They add drama. They add a little more interest than just looking at kind of a, a, a monotone view of water and sky in the distance. And they also add a little bit of reference to what you're looking at. Now, throughout the, the, the coming months, we'll be visiting with you from time to time to, to get your impressions of uh, the parks that you visit and some photo tips that will be helpful in general visitors going to the parks to capture them. Was there anything that stood out to you in your, your January visit to Olympic that you, you perhaps didn't expect? Well, the beaches, for one thing, but the rainforest. Now, I had wanted to go into the whole rainforest, but because of the shutdown, there had been some storm damage to the uh, road into the rainforest, that part of the national park. And so it, the boundary entrance was blocked. So I instead drove about 27 miles south from Kalaylock to visit the Quinault rainforest because part of that rainforest is in the national park. And I visited once, oh, over 20 some years ago, and I had forgotten the glow and the green colors, so many different shades, I lost count, and the the moodiness and the shadowy lighting in the rainforest. I think that actually stood out more for me than uh, the photos that I got along the beach, although the photos at the beach are beautiful as well. You know, Olympic has always stood out to me as a a unique national park in, in that in reality, it's almost like three national parks in one between the uh, the coastal area and the rainforest, and you can even go up to the roof of the park up on Hurricane Ridge and, and above that even, and you've got uh, an alpine setting with um, some glaciers up there. Absolutely, and so that's why I plan on revisiting this national park probably in late spring or in the summer when it's a little warmer and the weather is a little uh, a little better so I can get to these places that I didn't have a chance to get to this past January visit. Yeah. Well, we'll be looking forward to your report on that, Becky, and and thanks for the little uh, update on your recent visit to Olympic. And for anybody who's curious about what she came back with, if you go to nationalparkstraveler.org in the feature column, you'll see her winter shutdown story from Olympic National Park. Uh, Again, Becky, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Kurt. It was a pleasure. Before you see them, the roar, the whoosh, the crash. And when you see them, you just stand and marvel. They are the waterfalls of Yosemite National Park, and they leap from some of the most magnificent granite cliffs in the world. Rock monuments called El Capitan, Half Dome, and Glacier Point. But you don't need to stay in a crowded lodge during your Yosemite vacation. Yosemite's Scenic Wonders Vacation Rentals is the choice for people who want a great value for their Yosemite accommodations. Scenic Wonders offers beautiful homes located away from the more congested tourist spots to keep your stay feeling uninterrupted and memorable. Visit them at scenicwonders.com. Which is the most anticipated month for visiting national parks? At Capitol Reef National Park in Utah, it has to be September. That's the month when apples ripen and are ready for picking. 
From Pennsylvania to Utah and on west to California, the desire to bite into a nice, crisp, golden, delicious apple, or to pick a bag or bushel of apples for pies and sauce, always is a popular lure for park visitors. Some are tasting a figurative slice of history. That's because the apples that grow at Hopewell Furnace National Historic Site in Pennsylvania, at Capitol Reef, Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, and even Yosemite National Park in California, in many cases are the same varieties that settlers planted for their own tables and to sell to others. Though Capitol Reef draws its name from domes of white Navajo sandstone and the angular reefs of rock that reach for the sky, reds, tawny buffs, blacks, and browns also paint this national park. And so does green, in the form of sweet-scented fruit and nut orchards planted by Mormon settlers late in the 19th century. Those orchards continue today to bear apples, pears, apricots, cherries, plums, mulberries, almonds, and walnuts. Those alone are reason enough to visit this national park come harvest season. Looking for some history about these fruit orchards? Then you need to pick up a copy of Red Rock Eden, Story of Fruta, one of Mormon country's most isolated settlements. It was written by George Davidson, a former chief of interpretation at Capitol Reef. He points out that the pioneers planted varieties of apples that have almost disappeared or are completely gone from today's Fruta apple orchards. Apples like Jonathan, Rome Beauty, Ben Davis, 20-ounce Pippin, and Yellow Transparent. But not all varieties have vanished, at least not from Capitol Reef. More than two dozen varieties grow today in this red rock landscape. Some, such as Jonathan's, Macintosh's, Wine Saps, Red Delicious, and Granny Smith's, still can be found in a well-stocked grocery. But where else might you find a display of Ben Davis, also known as the Mortgage Lifter, a variety that can be traced to Virginia in 1799, or Grimes Golden, which dates back to 1804 in West Virginia? or the red astrakhan, which is thought to have roots extending back several centuries to the banks of the Volga River in Russia. So fertile are Fruta's soils that Capitol Reef, where the orchards have been designated a rural historic landmark, even has its very own variety of apple. It's known as the Capitol Reef Red, a crisp, fleshy apple perfect for eating right off the tree, or in a deep-dish apple pie, my favorite. Predictions for the 2019 fruit season show that the bloom may begin in early April and last for two to three weeks. Bing cherries are expected to be ready for picking in limited quantities beginning in mid-June and should last throughout the month. Apricots are expected to become available the last week of June. Apples and pears may begin to be ripe enough to pick in early August, and the main peach harvest is expected to occur in late August. Capitol Reef has the largest collection of historic orchards in the National Park System, with about 54 acres shaded in season by roughly 2,600 fruit and nut trees. But it's not the only fruit basket in the system. Just about 50 miles west of Philadelphia grow the apple orchards of Hopewell Furnished National Historic Site. This park preserves the history of one of the country's first iron producers, one that cast cannons for the colonials during the Revolutionary War. Historians believe the first apple trees on the site appeared in the late 1780s. Unfortunately, the lineage of those trees didn't descend directly to the four acres of orchards found today at the historic site. Still, among the apples you'll find at Hopewell Furnace are Spitzenberg's, said to be Thomas Jefferson's favorite, Cary Irish Pippin, Summer Rambo, and Smokehouse, a variety traced to 1837 when it was grown next to a smokehouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Elsewhere in the National Park System, 
Backcountry wanderers might find some heirloom apples in the hollers of Shenandoah National Park dating to homesteaders. While the park doesn't maintain any orchards, some of those old trees still bear fruit. In Yosemite, two small orchards trace their heritage to the 1860s when settlers planted them. Today, these orchards are plucked clean of fruit by park staff and volunteers in mid-August when it ripens so as not to entice black bears. Now, if you find yourself close to Capitol Reef or Hopewell Furnace during harvest season, stop in to pick some apples. Both parks allow you to pick apples for a dollar a pound, and they even provide you with extension poles and buckets to make it easy. At Capitol Reef, when there's a good harvest, you can pick a bushel of apples for $16. That's it for this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.